Your body is an animal, doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch. Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage, singing in your chest. You wanna shut it up, but give it a rest. You're gonna die one day. As I explained in the last.、Um Episode. My dad convinced me to go back to Hobart and finish school my senior year, which I was very much against because the、uh, student handbook very clearly stipulated that I had to be on campus senior year. Everyone has to be on campus senior year, and I was done. I was fucking done, man. You know, I the way I looked at it, a BA in literature, in English and American literature, says you've read a bunch of shit. You know how to read. You know how to write. You know how to analyze what you've read.、Uh, I had proved that. You know, I had、uh, read a lot of stuff. I had impressed my professors. I was hanging out with the professors. I honestly, you know, was spending more time getting high with my professors than I was、uh, with students. And.、Um, So it was pretty clear that, in their opinion, I had、uh, jumped through the necessary hoops. But because of technicalities, I had to do another year on campus, and I was emotionally really ready to go. As as I explained earlier in earlier episodes, I'd had this sort of epiphany where I realized I didn't really want to be an academic anyway. So what the hell does any of this matter? You know, I wanted the knowledge that I was getting from reading a lot of these. This literature, but、uh, I wasn't really interested in becoming a professor as I thought I I was going to be. So, so what the hell's the point?、Um, but my dad thought it was very important for me to go back and finish school, and I had a great deal of respect for him, so I did. I went back, and as I I think I explained in the last episode, I was living in a tent out behind the art museum in a patch of woods. And、uh, I was taking showers in the gym, and then my pe- my tent got stolen, and、um, then I started sleeping on my professor's office floor, which was interesting.、Uh, except for the times I overslept, and he walked in with a student for office hours, and I was lying there in my sleeping bag, you know, under his desk, which was kind of awkward.、Um, And about this time, I was hanging out with my professor and、uh, one of the deans of the school, who was an anthropologist. I won't say his name because it's possible he's working somewhere、uh, still today, and I don't want to cause any awkwardness for him. But because、um, he was a really good guy, but he was trained as a as an anthropologist. And at this point, he was working as a dean. I never took a class with him, which I regret because I really liked him as a person. But at that time, I didn't understand how interested I would be in anthropology.、Um, I didn't get it. And looking back, you know, I guess it's the curse of age. But there's so many things I didn't get. So many things you can't possibly get when you're twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two. There's just there hasn't been time, and there's too much information, and there, there's it, it's not. The time to be making lifelong decisions. Thank God I was smart enough to get that. I mean that that's the key to this whole thing. That I, I guess the you know the turning point was, you know, going from thinking I was smart and knew a lot 
to realizing that I really didn't know anything um, or very little. And that is the most important thing to know. If you know how little you know, if you have a sense of how limited your vision is, that opens your vision. That knowledge itself opens your vision incredibly. You know, we're we're all walking through darkness with our little flashlights. And most of us think that what we see is all that there is. We don't realize we're looking, we've got a flashlight, you know, we don't. We don't understand how limited our vision is. Um, but recognizing how narrow your vision is, how narrow your knowledge is and your experience and so on, especially when you're young, um, is so important because it just opens up the world of possibility to you. It's intimidating and freaky and all that, but it's very important. And I, I that's one of the reasons I regret not studying anthropology as an undergrad, because I think that's what a lot of anthropology is about. It's about understanding the multiple realities that cultures create and how quickly we fall into thinking that our reality, whether cultural, personal, religious, historical, whatever, chemical, is reality itself, as opposed to a single limited perspective on reality. Anyway, so I'm hanging out one night uh, with my professor, Eric, whose office I was sleeping in, and this dean whose name I'm not going to use. Um, and I was, I was bitching, you know, I was bitching about how, you know, I've done my dues, I've, I've jumped through these hoops, I've proven what I need to prove. uh, Why do I have to spend another fucking year at this college? You know, it's just taking my my life, my time. I want to be out on the road. I want to be traveling. I want to be adventuring. I want to be, you know, having experiences and I'd be learning so much more from the experiences than I'm going to learn from another nine months sitting around in this college in upstate New York reading, you know, books. And the dean said, well, why don't you just fucking go then? And I said, I can't go. I've got to you know, do my time here, blah, blah, blah. And he said, listen, he said, do you know some professors who would agree to do independent studies with you? And I said, yeah, but according to the handbook, I can only do one independent study in my senior year. He said, yeah, right. But let's say you found a few professors who were willing to do an independent study with you. Whose job is it to notice that you're doing more than one independent study? I said, I don't know. He said, that's my job. So if you went out and you got three professors, because this was uh, the way the school was set up, you did three classes per term. He said, you, do, you get three professors to sign on to do independent studies with you. They don't need to know that you're doing independent studies with other professors. You turn in the paperwork to my office. I approve it. It goes into a file and no one ever sees it again. Do you get what I'm saying here? I did. What he was saying was, if I could get three professors to sign on to allow me to do independent study classes, he would not notice and put that shit in the file and I could do whatever the fuck I wanted. So I went to some professors And I told them my plan. I basically said to them, look, do you think I would learn more 
traveling by myself in Mexico for the next few months or being here on campus? And they said, yeah, you'd learn more traveling. I said, all right, will you do an independent study with me? Sure. Okay, boom, sign the paper, blah, blah, blah. So I did it with three professors, and off I went. So I guess I did fall term on campus, winter term I took off and went to Mexico, and then spring term I was back on campus and I graduated, and then I went back to Alaska. So we'll get back to the second Alaska trip in the next episode. This episode I'm going to focus on on what I did winter term. So I guess I was on campus till November, which was probably more or less when my tent was stolen. And then I came up with this thing. Actually, the the dean came up with this plot for me to to take off. So I did. So I went home Thanksgiving break, or I guess it was Thanksgiving break um, in Florida. My parents lived in Florida at the time. And I told them, I'm not going back to school. What I'm going to do is go to Mexico and you know travel around and have this adventure i'd never been in a foreign country other than canada at that point so this was my first foreign trip and i remember my mother saying to me why would you want to go to mexico it's just like florida now she was thinking of weather right so there's someone else who might have benefited from studying some anthropology anyway i I uh, took off. I went from Florida. I believe I flew directly from Florida to Cancun. Now, this is 1983. Yeah, this is late 1983. And I didn't speak any Spanish. Flew into Cancun. Didn't know anybody in Mexico. And um, I was traveling on the money that my parents had given me to support myself uh, in Geneva, New York at, at school. So they were still paying tuition. They had, you know, skipped, they paid no tuition my junior year, but we were still paying tuition for this because I was officially enrolled. And as far as the school knew, I was there. Um, but so I took that money and I used that to travel in Mexico. So I landed in Cancun. I remember the first night um, I went into this little place to get some food. I didn't speak any Spanish, didn't understand a fucking thing. And I saw on the menu, sopa de tortuga. And I thought, well, tortuga, I don't know what tortuga is, but it looks like tortilla. So I know what a tortilla is, and tortilla soup or something like that. So I, it was turtle soup. Weird. And I was a vegetarian. That's still, I was still a freaking vegetarian. So, um... Yeah, Mexico. So I was a little paranoid. And one of the things that I I did before I left was I made a necklace uh, with a Kung Fu star, you know, one of those stars you can like throw and it'll stick in wood with the sharpened points. Um, I drilled a hole in it and I put a gold chain, um, hooked a gold chain into it. And then where I closed the gold chain, I made the, the link kind of weak. So in an emergency, I could pull this star and the chain would break at the other end, not the end attached to the star. And so I would have like a two foot gold chain with a very sharp star on the end that I could swing around like a nunchuck. And that would keep everybody away from me because I slice your fucking face off with this thing. So. That tells you a little bit about how paranoid I was about going to Mexico by myself. 
at that age. I was fucking armed and deadly. Uh, of course, after being there a little while, I realized nobody was going to hurt me. It wasn't, it wasn't like Mexico is now, or at least some parts of Mexico, where you do want to have a Kung Fu star or an AK-47 or something because it's fucking out of control. But back in those days, it was pretty chilled. Even Cancun was chilled. It wasn't the spring break mecca it became later. Um, it was commercial bullshit, but it was a lot more chill than it is now. So from I Had a Lonely Planet guidebook with me, and that uh, told me about a place called Isla Mujeres, which means the Isle of Women, um, apparently named that because pirates used to stash their women there before they went off on raiding missions. So I went to Isla Mujeres, which was at that point kind of a hippie, hippie hangout. It's a little island. Um, I stayed at a place where you um, – it was just a big courtyard and you would rent a hammock. They had all these palm trees with hammocks slung between them. And you just rent a hammock and – uh, I guess there were lockers for your backpack and showers and stuff. But it was very chilled out, very relaxed. I had studied uh, scuba diving in college. I had a scuba certification, so I did some scuba diving there. Very cool place. Uh, and I was there for a while, and then I decided to go to Palenque. So I – and I decided I was going to like just blast through. First, I went to Merida which is a very nice place, still at the end of the Yucatan Peninsula. And then from Merida, I decided I was going to blast through to Palenque. So I got this uh, bus. I think it was like a 30-hour bus ride or something. And I remember I had to change buses in a place called, I think it was Villa Hermosa. I'm not looking at a map. I'm trying to pull all this from memory. Um and I had to, like, hang in this bus station in Villahermosa for six hours or something waiting for the next bus. And by the time I got to Villahermosa, I was blasted. I was so tired and my stomach was kind of fucked up and everything, you know, I, had, I hadn't slept because I was on this bus all the way all night and... And I was, you know, hypervigilant and, you know, a little paranoid. And the way you get when you're in a completely alien environment, you don't know what the hell's going on and everything's kind of stressful and weird. And I, I lay down on a bench in this bus station because I was there from like midnight till waiting for the bus at six or seven in the morning. And there was this guy walking around with um, a broom and he kept coming over and jabbing me with the broom. Till I'd sit up. I couldn't lie there. Apparently there was, you know, like a no sleeping in the bus station policy. I'm sure designed to stop the homeless people from coming in there and sleeping, but he was applying it uh, vigorously to me as well. So he kept waking me up. I didn't get any sleep. Then the bus finally uh, was leaving for Palenque. I got on the bus to Palenque, and by the time I arrived in Palenque, I was in really bad shape. I got a room. I met a woman on the bus. I think she was German. Um, and she was sexy. She was really sexy. And I was really horny, but I was really sick. And, I, you know, I remember how sick I must have been because she was into hanging out. And I was like, sorry, I'm no. I just rented a room, went straight to the room and I spent the next three days in bed. I remember there was a bathroom 
but I couldn't get to the bathroom. That's how sick I was. And what I was doing was puking and shitting, just diarrhea and puke and diarrhea and puke and diarrhea and puke. And I guess I had some bottled water that I was, you know, replenishing, you know, rehydrating. Um, but I couldn't get to the bathroom. I had these plastic bags and I was like shitting and puking in these plastic bags and just like leaving them next to the bed. It was so fucking gross. It was pretty, I, I would say that's as sick as I've ever been on the road those three days. And I couldn't, I couldn't eat. I couldn't, I had, I think I had some, like a bag of fruit or something. I probably ate some bananas. Um, and, uh, I thought I was dying. It was horrible. But on the third day, I could drag myself out. I think I took a shower and I went out on the balcony and there was that woman. And we started chatting and she said, has anyone ever told you you look like Johnny Rotten? <laughs> no one ever had. I think she meant it as a compliment. I think she was like a punk rock fan or something or maybe it was Sid Vicious I don't know but it was one of those guys uh anyway Palenque very interesting place Palenque is um the site of amazing Mayan ruins it's a place where hallucinogenic mushrooms grow all over the place and apparently the ruins at Palenque were sort of um not a, a city for regular people to live. It was a place for the Mayan astronomers and the the astrological intellectuals of the Mayan world. Very interesting place if you ever get a chance to go there. it's uh, As far as I know, it's still pretty wild. It's hard enough to get to that it hasn't um, become part of the, the massive tourist highway like places Colum and Tulum and places out on the, on the Yucatan Peninsula have where you'll run into you know bus loads of japanese tourists and shit palenque is still pretty far off the path and uh so yeah palenque was amazing spent a few days there and then i took a bus up to san cristobal de las casas which is up in the, the mountains uh heading west across the the mexican mainland and my plan was to continue up over the mountains and then down to the Pacific to a place called Puerto Escondito, which is famous for its surf. And I was going to hang out there on the beach and check that out and then uh, and then head back to Cancun uh, for my flight out in, I don't know when it was, it must have been late February. Um, so I had a few months there. And what happened was I got to San Cristobal de las Casas and I fell in love with the place. It's an amazing, amazing place. It's, uh, you know, it's very far south, so it's tropical, but it's up in the mountains. So you've got like ponderosa pine kind of vibe. It's um, kind of feels like Colorado or someplace like that. Um, Indians living in the mountains all around the city, they come down on market day and, and they all have distinctive clothing very colorful and you can tell which tribe they're from based on the clothing they're wearing um, in fact the patterns of the clothing is so ornate and uh, they're so interesting um, but they prove to be very um, dangerous for the indians because 
each village has a distinctive pattern that they sew into their clothing. So when the conquistadors, the first Spanish, were, you know, fucking everything up there as they do, um, and some Indians would attack them, if they could, if they killed an Indian, they would just look at the, the pattern on the clothing and know exactly what village this guy came from, and then they'd go and kill everybody in the village. So uh, it's sort of their clothing is sort of like the opposite of camouflage, right? It just announces loudly, you know, who you are, where you're from. Um, interesting side note about the name San Cristóbal de las Casas. San is saint, and this uh, Cristóbal de las Casas was a Spanish missionary who was there in the very early days of the Spanish conquest of Mexico. So, yeah, he was a Christian, and he was indoctrinated into all that, you know, typical conquistador bullshit, but he was also a humanist, and he saw the incredible abuse that the Spanish were inflicting upon the native people, and he felt it was unjust, and that God would be opposed to this, because these Indians are people, and they're deserving of dignity, and some other uh, Christian theologians said, what are you talking about? They're not people, they're animals. And so they don't deserve the respect and dignity of human beings. God doesn't consider them to be human beings, so we can do whatever the fuck we want to them. Um, and so this became um, a serious issue in the Christian theological world. Are native people of the Americas human beings in God's eyes? And so the Vatican staged a debate to resolve this issue and arguing on the side of uh, human dignity for the native people was uh, Cristóbal de las Casas and arguing against that, saying that no, these are not human beings and therefore not deserving of God's grace, was a man named Sepulveda. So if you're in L.A., you know Sepulveda Avenue or street, I don't remember, but there's a big street there called Sepulveda. There's a Sepulveda street in Barcelona. There's Sepulvedas all over the place. And next time you hear that, remember that asshole was the guy who was arguing that Indians were no better than dogs and uh, deserve no, no better treatment than dogs. So San Cristobal de las Casas is this just beautiful, wonderful mountain air lovely colonial city and um, years later it became famous as the sort of base of operations of um, Subcomandante Marcos and the Zapatistas. This is in the region of Mexico called Chiapas. Um, so I was there loving this place, really getting into it and there was a cafe I found that I, I really liked. It was sort of a hippie, new agey, Mexico kind of cafe. And I used to go there for breakfast and they had a big bulletin board. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, you know, with like activities, things that were going on. And, and that was, a. I remember going to um, visit San Juan Chamula, which was a village up in the mountains where some of the the Indians who came down on market day, that was their, their village. I went up there, and they have um, an old Spanish colonial church built in the 1500s, late 1500s. And the Chamulas had removed all the – there were no chairs in it. They'd taken out all the chairs, 
and the floor was covered with pine branches. So they, they just brought in fresh pine branches and the altar was really weird. They, they still had the altar and they had a statue of Jesus, but it was covered with like flashing Christmas lights. They had some, like one of these cheap little Christmas machines you'd find at Target or something that was just playing this like really stupid, um, cheap sounding Christmas music and the lights were flashing and next to the statue of Jesus on either side of him were bottles of Coca-Cola and Fanta. And the reason for that is that these um, people who don't read generally, and a lot of them don't speak Spanish, they speak their native language. They would take, um, buses or walk along the roads to, to go and do seasonal farming work. Or some of them worked in, in canneries, I mean, not canneries, in uh, factories. Um, in fact, there was a Coca-Cola bottling plant near there that some of them worked in probably. But anyway, they would see these big signs for Coca-Cola and Fanta along the side of the highway. And not really understanding what was going on, they thought that these things had magical powers because of these big signs. You know, they saw that these things were celebrated in the dominant culture. And so they assumed that they had some magical powers. And they had sort of worked their way into the religion in strange ways. I remember someone explaining to me that if a baby was sick, they would crack an egg on the baby and rub the egg uh, on the baby's skin and then let it stay until it started to smell bad. And the the idea was that the stink of this egg on the baby was pulling the sickness out of his body, and that's why it smelled bad. And then they would bathe the baby in Coca-Cola. And that would uh, that would solve the problem. Around the same time that I, I heard about this, I read in the newspaper that uh, um, there had been a strike at the Coca-Cola bottling, bottling plant and um, they were demanding, you know, humane wages and uh, a stop to the abuse that the, the employees were getting. And, um, yeah, the private security company hired by Coca-Cola uh, shot into the crowd and killed half a dozen people. The kind of stuff that used to happen in the United States quite regularly in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Um now, of course, we have more subtle ways of dealing with labor unrest, like wiping out labor unions, but that that's another conversation. Anyway, it was just strange to read in the paper about how, you know, the security company was killing people at the Coca-Cola bottling plant while the Indians were up there thinking Coca-Cola was a magical substance that the gods had provided to save their children. Strange, strange days. I met a guy... In the cafe one day, I was sitting there reading, and there was this very intense-looking guy came in, looked like Jesus, um, sunken cheeks, you know, very gaunt, a little beard, dark hair, kind of wild eyes, a little, a little um, Charles Manson kind of vibe, but not that crazy, not crazy at all, actually, just very intense. He came over and he sat down. He was carrying a book with him, which I later learned he carried with him everywhere. It was a copy of The Plague by Camus. 
And uh, this guy's name was Angel, Angel Vivar. And Angel and I were were talking, and um, he spoke English quite well. And Angel was like um, he was a he was a fierce intellectual, a very political, um, and that and that was his identity. He was a, a philosophical. He was a thinker. He he was very. He's kind of a mystical guy in some ways. And um, anyway, he, he asked me what I was doing. We talked for a while, and he said, uh, he said I, I teach Spanish if you want to learn some stuff. And I said, yeah, okay, I, I do. I want to learn Spanish. So, And I wanted to know this guy better. So he was, I would say, late 20s probably, maybe, yeah, somewhere around there. So he's about 10 years older than me. And... Um, and it was just cool to have uh, someone from there who spoke English who could show me around, and he introduced me to some people. And anyway, we started meeting in this um, in the courtyard of one of the the nicer hotels in town. Uh, they had like a courtyard cafe, so I would buy us a couple of coffees, and we would sit there for an hour, and he'd um, teach me Spanish. So that went on for a while, maybe a couple of weeks, three weeks, and then. I thought that I was going to extend my trip. I wanted to stay longer than I had initially planned. I think initially I'd planned to stay till the end of the year, but now I I thought I wanted to stay until I had to go back to, to Hobart for spring term, which was March, I think. So I wanted to stay another two months, but I only had the money that I had. So I decided I got to cut way back on expenses in order to make this work. So I spoke with Angel and I said, listen, dude, you know, I can't keep doing these Spanish classes because money, blah, blah, blah. And this is the kind of guy he was. He said, ah, that's okay. I, I like spending time with you. So let's keep doing it. You don't have to pay me uh, with money. But um, what could you teach me? And we could do an, an exchange, right? And at that point, the only thing I had ever taught anyone was Kung Fu. I'd studied Kung Fu when I was young, um, like from, I don't know, 10 to 14 or something like that, 15. And I got pretty good. I was an instructor and, you know, whatever. But that's the only thing I'd ever taught anyone. And here's this guy on here, like, G you know, who's going to teach Kung Fu to Jesus, right? But, um, you know, I said I'd taught Kung Fu. And he said, oh, that would be great. Okay, let's, let, you know, you can teach me some stuff. So we would meet in this hotel and do Spanish for an hour. And then I would, we'd go into the courtyard and I was teaching him how to fall and roll around and do all this stuff. And so immediately, like within a day the you know, the hotel guys were like, you can't do this here. You know, you, that's not going to work. So, uh, then Angel said, listen, you don't have any money. Uh, you're trying to save money. We need a place where you can teach me self-defense. Why don't you come and stay where I stay? I live on this hacienda outside of town. So I went with him to check it out, and it was this beautiful ranch with a house and um, this building that, that had had a mill. Like there was a stream, and they, there was like one of these big um, – wooden wheels that turned a mill to grind grain it wasn't functional now but it, the mill house was like a big barn and someone who had stayed there with them had painted on one wall of this mill house like i'm it's it's 
hard to remember, but I remember it being huge. I remember it being like maybe 15 feet high by 30 feet wide, like this wild Diego Rivera mural depicting the history of Mexican workers and the, you know, the glory and dignity of the farmers and all that kind of stuff. And what was going on, there were like maybe 15 or 20 dudes there and, and 10 women and a bunch of kids and just this big kind of hippie Mexican community living on this place. It was great. It was wild. Nobody spoke English except Angel and his friend Rafael, um, who we are going to meet in a later episode of this podcast in a very bizarre way. So if you're listening to all of these and you're intending to continue, remember Angel and Rafael for future reference. And anyway, they um, they were the only two who could sort of, you know, facilitate any communication. But uh, yeah, so I moved in and it was weird. It was very weird because I wish so much that I spoke Spanish because these people were so kind to me and all these kids were running around playing and the women were smiling and making tortillas and food and and the dudes were like Angel and Rafael were these intellectual guys, but the other dudes were rough. They were rough looking. They were kind, but like a lot of scars and, you know, hard life. And then I realized that now everybody wanted to learn Kung Fu, not just Angel. So the class is now instead of just me and him rolling around, it's now me and like a dozen guys. And I'm trying to explain stuff. Now, as a self-defense teacher, you're not supposed to teach people dangerous moves. You're supposed to start them out with like how to fall, how to protect yourself, a little meditation, you know, the basic stuff to weed out the assholes who just want to learn how to gouge someone's eyes out. But these people were feeding me and taking care of me, and I was like sleeping in hammocks next to them and playing with their kids, and so I was going to teach them pretty much whatever they wanted. And you know, and I'm no great expert anyway, so you know, my repertoire of what I could teach was was limited by my own ignorance. But they were not interested in how to fall and roll around. They were interested in very specific things, like how do you defend against a machete attack from the upper right? Uh, how do you deal with a pistol in your back or at the back of your head or at your forehead? Um, is there something you can, is there a move for a, for a rifle, you know, pointed at your heart, uh, close range knife attacks. They were very interested, very specific and very eager to learn. So, the classes were intense and strange. And, you know, as I said, I was like, what? This was 83. So I was 20. I was 20. Okay. So I was young. I was a young fucking punk out of my element. No idea what was going on, but these people were cool. They were taking care of me. I was helping them. Meanwhile, I should say that like it was a bit of a crisis atmosphere down there because this was 1980, late 1983. Ronald Reagan was in the White House. There was war all over Central America. The Contras, the, the Sandinistas, the America was funding, supporting, uh, arming death squads all over Central America that were horrible. 
Um, and in Guatemala, which is very close to San Cristobal de las Casas, um, the Guatemalan government was um, essentially engaged in genocide. They were using American heli- helicopter gunships. They were wiping out entire villages. Um, they were waging genocide against the native uh, population of Guatemala. It was, I don't know if it still is, but in those days it was illegal to teach an Indian how to read in Guatemala. That's how insane that place was and still is. It's it's a beautiful country. I, I've been there. I'll talk about it in a future podcast, but um, it's, a, it's an extremely violent um, place that's been cursed by American foreign policy for uh, a long time and before that, Spanish foreign policy. So... Um, Anyway, so I'm there with these guys, and you now, of course, before Angel invited me to live there, he checked me out politically, and he saw that I was, you know, I, I in those days I considered myself to be a Marxist. I was um, very aware of what America was doing in the world. I was very um, uh, painfully conscious of um, our responsibility in much of the suffering in Latin America. And so he saw that I was a kindred spirit. I wasn't some, you know, American Yahoo who had no idea what was going on, which is why he invited me out there. And I'm sure he assured everybody, even though they couldn't understand me, that I was one of the good ones, you know. And I remember actually Angel, Rafael, and I – They took me on a long walk in the jungle for a couple of days. The first night we stopped somewhere. I remember there was this little house. We stayed in the house. And I think I have a picture um, of us in that little house. I'll I'll post if I find it at chrisryanphd.com under Toma, the podcast um, link uh, of, and I think in the picture, one of them is rolling a joint. And they used to smoke joints in newspaper. Um, yeah, no rolling papers. They would uh, put the weed, you know, very bad weed, in. Um, they'd make a, a cone joint out of newspaper and smoke that. And they had some magic mushrooms that was in honey. And I remember we, we tripped together on the magic mushrooms. And then I gave them some gifts. I gave them my Swiss Army knife. And my Kung Fu star necklace. And they joked around and they called me the CIA agent. That was their nickname for me. Because I was, you know, had all these secret <laughs> weapons. <laughs> and uh, and was teaching them, you know, the martial arts. And uh, this was at the end, at the very end of my trip. And the next day of this hike, they took me to this place by a river and we came to a little area and they they pulled back this, um, all these branches that were covering a hut. And they said, we just wanted you to know what you've been helping us with. You deserve to know. And they opened the hut and it was full of um, crates of, of weapons, of um, explosives and machine guns and I don't know what, Israeli um, 
And uh, these guys that I had been teaching martial arts to were smuggling weapons to the Guatemalan rebels. And that's why they were so interested in uh, learning how to defend themselves. So I had stumbled into this situation where I was teaching self-defense to um, to essentially to gun runners um, who I supported politically. I'm not saying I necessarily would have involved myself in this um, if I had known what I was doing. But since I didn't, uh, that's what I'd been doing. Um, and then I went back to school and, you know, we'll, we'll go on with the story. But then years later, uh, when the Zapatistas arose, I remembered those guys. And I realized that they didn't own that fucking place where we were staying. They had occupied it. That was some farm owned by some Mexican millionaire who lived in Mexico City and probably rarely got down there, and they had just taken it over. So I was in a more precarious situation than I realized. Uh, at any point, the cops could have come and shot everybody, or you know, and maybe that was another reason to have me out there. Maybe it lent them some protection to have an American tourist um, staying on the farm with them. But in any case, uh, that was my adventure. I never did get down to Puerto Escondido or the Pacific, uh, not on that trip. I stayed in San Cristobal as long as I possibly could, um, you know, which was pretty much that, that hike into the, into the jungle. And then I, uh, I got myself back to, to Cancun and flew back to school and uh, finished up at Hobart. You can imagine I was a different person when I got back than I had been when I left after that experience. Um, but anyhow, that was my first trip to Mexico. And that's what I mean when I say sometimes that I taught self-defense to uh, land reform activists in Mexico. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you wanna say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say Headed for a headstone 
a big deal if you want to be free say what you want to feel spend the night with me i'm gonna take you up in my arms and if we must go down we'll go singing to the smoke alarms we'll dance into the ground